Hello and a very warm welcome to Sporting Lives where we showcase the story of someone who's been involved in sport with distinction in whatever way that has manifested itself. In the case of today's guest, he holds the distinction of being the first British goalkeeper to command a £1 million transfer fee when he signed for Crystal Palace in 1989. He also holds the distinction of being Cornish and he's played 23 times for England, a rare distinction for a Cornishman. Um, as a full international footballer. There were UEFA and Champions League semi-finals in a seven-year spell with Leeds United uh, that subsequently had more than one fan poll voting him the club's all-time greatest goalkeeper. Knowing the Yorkshire approach to southern softies, as it were, that's probably his greatest achievement. Welcome along, Nigel Martin. Thank you. Good to be here. We've got loads to talk about, not least your passion for cricket, but we'll leave that to a little bit later on because, of course, it was football where you made your name um how did all that begin for a, a youngster down in um in cornwall um playing non-league football in cornwall um actually giving up football once i'd left school and uh, my brother's works team was short one saturday and he said my brother's quite handy over the park and when we have a kick around and that sort of thing you know and they sort of said yeah just tell him to come along so um, I did that, happily uh, played for, for that sort of team in the Dutchy League down in Cornwall, which is just about the lowest league there is, um, for, for a couple of seasons. Then moved to more senior football in Cornwall um, with Bugle and then on to St Blasey. And whilst I was at St Blasey, unbeknown to me, there was a guy that uh, owned a carpet shop in St Blasey. He knew the tea lady at Bristol Rovers. And he rang her. She went in and saw Jerry Francis, and Jerry said, "Well, get him up for a trial." That all sounds like a bit of a seamless transition in terms of sort of youth football, but it's pretty competitive wherever you are in this country. There's so much talent around, so many people playing the game. Was it as easy as it sounds going through those ranks? No, I mean I played I played boys football and and school football, um, you know, right the way up through. But but when I actually left school, I stopped playing so for probably six six months eight months I didn't play any sort of sport at all um, and it was just you know a chance thing that my brother's work team was short which got me back playing um, I didn't really have any aspirations about playing professionally I uh, just wanted to enjoy it and um, literally got somebody to or I didn't get them somebody actually just on their own back just um, recommended me for a trial and and you know once you get that trial it's it's worth having a go so that's what I did. When you played in that sort of school youth junior football were you always playing in goals then or did you want to be a striker like the rest of us and score the glory goals? No I wanted to be a goalkeeper but I wasn't allowed to play in goal oh. so um, at school level I was you know playing for the year above at right wing um, and then um, centre forward and for my sort of um, Sort of boys football on a you know on a Saturday morning or a Sunday it was um, again right wing right midfield centre forward that sort of thing that that was where I played um, but always wanted to play in goal so you know in the in the downtime as as kids when we would kick around uh, over the park I was always in goal and the cricket thing um, as I say we will talk about it in a bit more detail later but were you also doing that and sort of doubling up with the sports like again lots of uh, young lads do. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, school cricket. Um, managed to play um, cricket for Cornwall schools. Uh, managed to go through on the on the Cornish rugby as well. Qualified, you know, in, in for that. Um, but I didn't make it at, at football um, for Cornwall um, at school level. So that was, you know, a little bit disappointing. But um, no, the the cricket thing was was always there. But it it sort of probably always played a slight second fiddle because you'd have you know. Um, like a, a lap over of games, maybe a couple of games at the end of, say, your football season might, you know, clash with with your cricket and uh, football certainly um, was the, was was the one that uh, that I played most. So how did you feel when you got the the nod to to go for a trial um, with Jerry Francis involved at uh, Bristol Rovers? Because you know Jerry Francis, for those of us who've never played professional sport, big name at the time, captain England back in the seventies, and he'd uh, you know had quite a nice managerial. Career, very, very well-known figure. Nerves? No, not really. I had nothing to lose. I was working in a plastics factory in Cornwall doing 12-hour shifts. Um, you know, that's... Uh, once you, So you've got an opportunity to go and, um, you know, go on trial and, you know, become a professional footballer. 
Um, I, I didn't have anything to lose. That was the way I looked at it. I just went and uh, sort of did my best and worked as hard as I could. And how was he with you? Was he a good good guy to to mentor, to, to work alongside? Yeah, he was, he was he was fantastic. He, you know, th- that's the type of first manager that you need, really. You know, he you know he was dealing in in the old third division, so he knew slightly limited players, um, and he knew how to get the best out of them. And you know, all the players respected him, looked up to him, because obviously, being the England captain, um, you know, there was a couple of journeys where there would be a, a videotape put on of of Jerry playing for England and captaining England, and him sort of asking us to count how many times he gave the ball away whilst the video was on, which was, uh, of course, zero. So, uh, yeah, no, he was he was great for somebody, you know, to look up to. And his, his number two was Kenny Hibbert as well. So Kenny had had a, you know, a great uh, career, you know, playing Division One football, um, you know, at Wolves and other teams. So, you know, the two of them had, a you know, a load of experience that, that they were happy to pass on, which was great for, for newcomers. And in terms of who did you work with goalkeeper-wise? Did you feel... That you'd made a big um, sort of improvement in those early days by working with somebody full time. Um, I, I worked with Roy Dolling, who was the physiotherapist. Um, you know, at, as uh, you do, as, as you do. I mean, he was a goalkeeper, so he would have played you know, sort of non-league football in and around the um, the Bristol and Bath area. And so it was just a case of after training, you know, Roy would would come out the the physio block and and get you know a bag of balls, and we'd go off and. And he just worked me into the ground. It was really old-fashioned stuff, you know, up, dive, up, dive, side to side, you know, literally just working me into the ground. But it, it made me stronger, gave, gave me more strength. You know, it wasn't necessarily technical work, but it was just hard physical graft, which, um, you know, gives you your, your base for goalkeeping, really. And did you do that sort of thing that Peter Shilton used to do on TV where you faced the wrong way and somebody... Had a pen, took a penalty at you or whatever, and you tried to. Um, say. That kind of <laughs> that came in into the goalkeeping sessions as I went on. It wasn't something necessarily we would do with Roy, but um, you know, subsequent goalkeepers, coaches, you know, you work with, you know, sometimes you're you're facing away from the ball, and you know, it's a case of getting your head round and your body around and getting set as quickly as you can for the shot. Sounds like a really happy then start then to your professional footballing career with good times at, at Rovers. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we were. We were favourites for relegation when I went there, so again there was no great expectations, and probably for the first half of the season we sort of lived up to that um, that billing. But then towards the end of the season, you could see that Jerry was moulding us into a really good um, side, and we sort of went on a run at the end of the season. I think we lost, I think it was one in thirteen games, and we had twelve clean sheets in thirteen games as well towards the end of that season and you could really see the improvement that was happening. Um, so we finished eighth that year and the following year we got into the playoffs. So, um, you know, from being relegation favourites, he, he turned it around with just getting a few people out of non-league football um, and moulding them in, us into a good team. Yeah. Good uh, managerial qualities then and, and uh, clearly you know, great at working on that sort of team ethic and team spirit and cohesion that, that whatever level of sport you play Absolutely. you need if you're going to be successful um, so we get then to 1989 you mentioned the 12 clean sheets out of 13 games with, with Bristol Rovers um, that obviously reflects well on the guys who are playing in front of you but uh, certainly reflects well on you between the, uh, the posts there were you starting to get then noticed was the, the odd nudge or call or whatever you know trying to catch your eye and maybe think about improvement um, transfers um not not so much at that stage but by the end of that first season i think jerry had seen something in me um and he was uh, big friends with dave sexton who was obviously his old manager and probably a bit of a mentor for jerry and dave was in charge of the under 21 so at the end of my first season i, I got into the under 21 side which um you know, for a Bristol Rovers player, wasn't you know I was mixing it with Gaza and people you know like this from the you know at Tottenham and Arsenal players and Liverpool players. So it, it was a bit strange um, to do that. It was really a, right at the back end of my career at Rovers that you know the other clubs started to take notice. But uh, I was really naive to it to be honest. I just wanted to carry on playing and doing what I was doing. And when we think about uh, million pound transfers. I was, uh, certainly those who are our sort of age, if I can put myself in the same bracket, we think Trevor Francis, of course, the one that always stands out because he was the first. And those first few, uh, the Kevin Reeveses and the 
Peter Barnes was up, more or less, wasn't he? Um, I guess it sort of shows, though, unfortunately for a goalkeeper, the value of a goalkeeper in the general mindset, by comparison to a forward, that it took another decade for a goalie to go for a million quid. But it's a proud stat, and when you're the first to do anything, nobody can ever take that away from you, Nigel. Is that um, something you sort of hang your hat on? Have you dined out on that? Um, I wouldn't say I dined out on it, no. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm proud to have done it. You know, there were other goalkeepers around at the same time. I think Dave Seaman went just after for 1.3. Tim Flowers went just just after that again for for over a million quid. And you know, it was it was just a case of when it was going to happen, really. And I think it was, you know, it was a big thing for for a club like Crystal Palace to do. And you know, you would probably put that more on you know a Liverpool or a Manchester United or somebody like that to to make the first move there. But you know, fair play to them, they did it. I think that's that's the important thing, you know, goalkeepers are very important. You know, you see them now, you know, they're 50 or 60 million pounds now and uh, I think uh, managers are starting to realize that, you know, to if you to get the one that you actually want, you might have to pay the same sort of fee as you would for, a, you know, a top midfielder. Are you worth it? <laughs> it wasn't my valuation, so we say, oh, you know, it's it's difficult to say that any player was worth a million pounds at that time. Um, it was just the industry that we were in sort of dictated that was the price. I, I didn't um, put myself down as being as good as that because it's just putting pressure on yourself. You know, it's it was other people's valuation. That's what I yeah. That's what I kept saying. Come on, of course you were. So it was uh, Steve Coppel, I think, in one of his well, he had more spells at Crystal Palace than Harry Potter, I suppose, something like that. Um, he. I think he was the man in in charge, wasn't he, at the time? How did it come about? When, when was the, the 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 numbers, if you like, the million first raised, and what did you think? Um, I think it was raised in newspapers and things, and I didn't uh, didn't necessarily sort of read newspapers and things like that. But my my father-in-law down in Cornwall was saying, "Oh, you've been linked with this, you've been linked with that," and you know nothing was coming through, you know, to me. But it was obviously it wasn't until Crystal Palace made the bid. And then sort of Jerry rang me and said, right, OK, we've had a bid, we've accepted it. You know, it's it's down to you to go and, you know, talk talk to them. And, uh, you know, that's what we did. Mm. And it led to, um, well, your longest spell with the club, didn't it? In the end, 350 games or so, League and Cup. Uh, and a good time once again before Leeds United came knocking on the door. I mean, what are your memories of playing for Palace and those characters? Yeah, I mean, it was a, it was an up-and-coming club. Um, certainly in, in Division 1 it, they'd got promoted they had really good players you know Ian Wright Mike Bright Jeff Thomas um, John Salako they were all there at the time um, but they were just struggling it was their first season in, in the old Division 1 as it was and um, they were just struggling a little bit near the bottom and I think they just got done 9-0 by Liverpool so I think it was a 9-0 and then it was a 5 at Notts Forest and I think that was the point when um, I think Ron Nodes, the chairman, sort of said, right, you know, with with the manager, we need to spend if we want to stay up. Um, and they got myself um, and Andy Thorne from um, from Wimbledon, and uh, you know, we sort of stopped the goals going in, if if you like, at that time. And um, you know, from there, we we went on a run. You know, got to the cup final that year, um, and and the club went from strength to strength for those first you know two or three years. Is that an exciting challenge then as a goalkeeper when the team's been shipping them in? If you can stop them, that makes you look like you really can do the job? Um, I, I think there was a few reasons. I don't think, you know, it was, you can blame Perry Suckling for, for letting in, you know, all the goals. You know, if you look at the video, there's not a lot you can do about any of them. You know, I think the team at the time was um, just defensively, for whatever reasons, couldn't quite do the job. So, um, you know, I think by making changes, it it ups everyone's game a little bit. You know, not just the the players that come in, but the players around them actually up their game as well. Um, and Thorny was a, a good leader at the back, and and he got the defence organised and whatever. And you know, with myself because I was still quite young and fairly inexperienced myself really at that time, so I was kind of learning as I was going as well a bit. But um, you know, it uh, you know it certainly improved. FA Cup final. Yeah, gutted really. Um, possibly should have won it. You know, got within six minutes, and uh, you know we try and play offside where you know we don't normally do. And Mark Hughes goes and, and scores a goal. I can remember making a save about two or three minutes before that from Paul Ince, where I sort of dived and tipped it over the bar. And I was thinking to myself, oh, you know, that that could be the save that 
that sort of helps us win it, but um, not to be. And um, my my overriding memory from it really is I so wished the game had been finished on the day, be it, you know, penalties or whatever, because, you know, it was such an anticlimax going back there a few days later, you know, it just didn't have the same feel to it really. And, um, you know, the game was very, very droll, really. Is it a case of when when that happens, and it's happened to a few people, but not that many within in the history of football, that, that you go there on the, the first time you ever play in an FA Cup final, uh, it's it's about the occasion, and then the second time it's more the game. Um, yeah, I I don't know. I mean, we had a you know a, a big dinner and everything planned, which we had, um, but it, it just everything seemed a bit empty. It wasn't we weren't sitting there as winners or losers. It just and we've got to go back and do it again. It was you know the the build up and everything to the cup finals in them days were, were it was a lot bigger. So. Um, we were we were certainly, I think you've you've climbed that mountain and and you sort of you've reached the final and and you want it to finish there and it, it obviously it didn't and you know it's still the FA Cup final and we still wanted to win it we still gave everything we had to try and win it but it just didn't have the same feeling. Again, uh, relating age-wise, growing up in the seventies, watching the cup finals in those days, I remember the players with the you know the sort of top of the trophy on the head after the game, the bottle of milk behind the curtain with David Coleman or somebody interviewing him on the BBC, probably Brian Moore on ITV if you watch that. Uh, and that it was a massive build-up, one that you got daft things happening in the morning in the build-up to the game. You followed the players on the coach. It was a three o'clock kickoff. Everybody seemed in the country seemed to watch it then. Do you, do you hanker for those days? You know, when you look back now, I know it's, it's a fair way after your career's finished, but it's a totally different feel about the whole competition. It, it, do you think it's been devalued and is it worse, football worse for that? I, I just think we have so much football on the telly now that it doesn't matter how big the game is, it's just another game. You know, it, it can be a, a Champions League final, you know, that sort of thing. I think the only thing really now that grips us in that way now is this, is if England are going to do really well, you know, getting to a, a World Cup semi-final, you know, I think that got us all on the edge of our seats again. Um, but, you know, those days of... You know, the FA Cup final, it was one of the very few live games that you would see. Um, you know, maybe an England game in and out. Um, and the Cup final was pretty much it. You know, the rest was was highlights match of the day or the big match on a Sunday, you know, that, that type of thing. Um, so we didn't have it very often. So it was, you know, you look forward to it for ages. But, you know, these days you've probably got four or five games, you know, a week you know, that are on the telly. So... It's it's certainly easier to to watch games. What was Steve Coppel like to work with? He was great. He was great with me. Um, just he tried to keep things as simple as possible. Um, with with my especially with my job, you know, you just said you know you, you basically stop the ball going in the goal, you know, and you know distribution that type of thing. He what you know he would say the things that he wanted me to do, um, which I did, and he was he was great to get on with. Really good manager. Um, didn't lose his call very often. You knew if he did that, you know, we weren't playing well enough, and that generally got the reaction it uh, it needed. So, how did things move on then to, to to your move to Leeds United? What what was the catalyst to that? Was it more ambition on your part? Was did the club need a few quid, and they decided that you know to cash in on Nigel Martin at two point something million or whatever it was was a good idea for them? What was the situation? yeah because uh, like we. We we got to the cup final the following year. We finished third in the old first division, which you know would have got us into Europe and everything. But obviously the teams were banned at that time. Um, and the following season, I think Wrighty left and went to um, went to Arsenal. And then Jeff Thomas left and, and Mark Bright left and and all the the sort of top stars sort of left. And we got relegated. And we had a, a young team at the at the time. You know, a young Gareth Southgate coming through and a young Chris Coleman, you know, both international managers, you know, since, but, you know, both in the team. And, you know, we get promoted again, so you're back in it. And then the following season, you get relegated again. So it's sort of down, up, down. Um, and I think the second time we got to the um, playoff final, um, you know, the, follow the following year, and uh, we lost in the final to Leicester. And um, I think the club then decided... It was time to, you know, cash in on me really. Whilst I was still, you know, of a decent age, that they could get good money for me. So are you saying that they listed you, or did, did 
was the word put out there that you were no they they i'd signed a new contract in the march and they sold me in the july okay <laughs> interesting yeah so i i kind of nailed my colors to the mast and sort of right you know this is where i want to be um and then you know a new manager comes in dave bassett who obviously likes to move players on and he probably thought you know if i've got a player of value and he's the goalkeeper then i might be able to get three or four outfield players for that money so you know from his point of view it's it, it was a business decision um but for mine it was you know a chance to you know go back and play in the premier league again what was he like Ari bassett it was a very short spell, um, pretty much what you see, um, you know, very, you know, set pieces, um, you know, just getting the ball into certain areas, winning your winning your individual battles with the people you're playing against. Um, yeah, pretty much what you what you see is what you get with him, really. Um, and you were, I mean, uh, also there before we finish on, on Palace, you know, you mentioned Brighty and, and Wrighty, uh, two absolutely top draw players. Two very interesting stories to tell themselves. So, Brighty and Wrighty, get yourselves on Sporting Live's podcast. I'm sure we can uh, sort that one out in the future. But what were they like to play with? Um, uh, yeah, great. You know, Brighty was a very intelligent footballer, um, had had skills, could hold the ball up really well, would would win flick-ons for, for Wrighty. Wrighty was just, you know, as good a finisher as I think I probably trained against. You know, he didn't. Or it wasn't about whacking the ball in the net. He could side foot it. You know, and he knew he would take it early before you could get set. He made it really awkward for goalkeepers. So, you know, a lot of his goals are instinctive. And um, you know, he was a great, he was a great striker. But the pair of them up there together would, you know, would terrorise a few defences these days. I think. Um, you know, Mark Bright, intelligent football, but you've got to be. You, you might say Ian Wright, instinctive, but you've still got to be bright to know exactly what you're going to read those situations and to be able to get in there first and score as many goals as they did, uh, both club and internationally. Yeah, absolutely. You know, together. Um, you know, them two with, with we had a good midfield. Jeff Thomas and Andy Gray in midfield as well, and John Salako on the left wing was probably our major threat for getting balls into the box for for Wrighty and Brighty that sort of thing, but. You know, those players were probably, you know, as good as there was in the league at that point. You know, Arsenal maybe and Liverpool had better teams, but they probably didn't have better, you know, strikers. And, and Jeff for a while was probably the best midfielder in the country, I reckon. There's no wonder the transfer fees kept going up then, Nigel, because um, Bristol Rovers making their own form of progress when you were there. Crystal Palace clearly making progress when you were there as well. And, and then Leeds United, a, a club who had been at the top for a decade, mid-60s to mid-70s, very well documented. Uh, not a not a particularly steep decline, but they'd been second division side in the old uh, second division for much of the 80s. And then back on the rise again when you sign, um, what, 1996, seven-year spell. Um, and that was, what, two and a quarter million pounds as well. Another uh, record, I think, at the time for a yeah, goalkeeper. Yeah, it was. Um, yeah, it was... Um... I was due to to actually sign for Everton, um, and we were travelling up to Everton to basically sign the deal. Um, when whilst we were on the motorway, um, my agent got a phone call saying that Leeds had matched the bid, and he just sort of said, "Look, it's in your interest. You want to speak to both parties, you know, because um, you know one could be sort of saying that you know they're about to spend fifty, sixty million, and and you know buy you know try and buy the league." So he said, "You need to." You know, for for your you know professionally, you need to go and speak to both. So, we got to Everton. Um, Joe Royal wasn't there. His wife was was not particularly well at the time, so he wasn't there, which is I fully understand and and agree with him not being there. The chairman was away on on business, and it was sort of left to a director to to handle the situation. And when we said that to him, he he panicked a little bit and um, he actually gave us directions from from the. Uh, from the factory where we'd met um, to to basically to get back onto the M62 to get across to Leeds. So you know when we got to Leeds, um, we met Howard Wilkinson and Bill Fotherby, and you know they're sort of they, there was no way they were going to let us go back again. You know, so I went from one that was sort of giving us directions, you know, out of the place to the other to the other where they they were determined to keep me. So. And I can't imagine Howard Wilkinson, Sergeant Wilkos, of course, who was affectionately known, particularly by the Leeds fans, uh, being a big 
you know, selling salesman, if you like, about his club. He, he's straight talking Yorkshireman. Was he like that to work with? Yeah, he was. Yeah, um, I, I mean, unfortunately, I didn't work too long with him because it was it's probably only five or six games into that first season that he got the sack. So, um, you know, he I, I I can remember we went to Germany on a pre-season tour, and um, he came across and he said, right, okay. Two and a quarter million. Let's have a look at this. And he and he and he, he himself started to volley balls at me. Well, he was standing about four yards away, volleying a ball quite hard at me, which um, was was sort of at my face. And I managed to get my hands up to it and sort of deflect it onto the bar. And he he just looked at me, and went two and a quarter million quid, and you can't even catch a ball from there. Like and just walked off. And I thought, uh oh, you know. But it was just his way of 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 just putting his um, stamping his mark on the on the situation and. I was fine, you know. It's it's how some managers are. And, and what what was that like for you then? What's the adjustment like when you've signed and you think you're going to be working for a fairly long term with a manager? I know managers, uh, you know, there is a bit of a shelf life and there is a bit of a merry go round. But you wouldn't have turned up there, signed that uh, deal, expecting him to go on within six matches. No, no, and you know that again. You know, you move your family. Uh, you know, my wife and and it was just our son at that time. Um, you know, we we all move up from London. You're lock, stock, and barrel, and you know, a few games in, the manager goes. And um, Mark Beanie was the other goalkeeper at Leeds at the time, and I, I remember him, you know, coming over and saying, ah, "New manager, this is an opportunity for me to try and you know force my way in," which is which is understandable and um, fair enough. And uh, so it was a little bit unsettling, but we got George Graham, and I think George really um, sorted the team out and got it playing not the most attractive football in the world to start with but it, it was good for me you know we got 23 clean sheets I think in the first season with George um, which I think and we but we didn't score many goals so you know it was pretty boring to watch but it certainly kept us up and then from there you know he went out and got some good players and he got Jimmy Hasselbank and things like that and Jimmy's goals you know get us into Europe and um, you know the way George organized you know or had the team organized um you know we we became really difficult to beat and that's really where the sort of you know the the better times that were around the corner were based on really George's work if I'm honest so he built the foundation because he pretty much brought a tag around his neck from Arsenal you know one nil didn't he that was the sort of way that Arsenal won the game that boring boring Arsenal and for a couple of seasons it felt like that I remember down at um down at Ellen Road but you know you're you're happy as a well, happy as Larry, shall we say? Yeah, um, absolutely. To be playing behind a defence that's keeping things tight. Yeah, absolutely. Because that that got me back into the England squad. You know, um, you know, it's my performances were. I, I wasn't having a lot to do in those games, but you might have one or two saves, and if you make them and you keep another clean sheet and another clean sheet, and people start talking about that, then obviously that sort of gets the England manager sort of looking. You know, I've certainly had better spells of where I felt I've been playing better and you don't get in, but you may have let, you know, a goal in or two goals in that you could do nothing about, but you feel like you're playing better. But it's, it, it goes to show that it's, it's the stats that really, you know, do make the head, heads turn of, of England managers, really. And what are these guys like to work with when they're away from the camera? Because, you know, we're all aware that they speak to somebody like myself or a journo, and there's the party line, and there's the there's the body language on camera. But what was a Howard Wilkinson who probably came over pretty dour a lot of the time, and a George Graham similarly? Are they that way inclined anyway, or are they a bit um, of fun really when the cameras stop rolling? I, they have their moments. They, they, <laughs> they, I mean, no manager really. Um, you don't see them laughing and joking that often with you. Um, you know, it's it's a serious business at the end of the day, and they. I think part of being that manager is to be, you know, a bit away from his players, really. And, you know, I've, I feel that players should have that respect for their manager and should, you know, look to him at all times. Whatever he's telling them to do is what you should do. Now, you know, not all players like to like to go that way. But I think, you know, if you, you should follow whatever your manager is trying to say. So um, I think it's important for them to look as though they're in, in authority at all times and, you know that's that's what you know George would do. George would, he'd give the biggest rollickings to his centre forwards, his centre halves, and his goalkeeper. You know I could come in, it could be nil nil, 
I might have made three really good saves and feeling on top of the world. And George would say, you know, you managed to kick, you managed not to find, our, you know, our player from goal kicks for the last three kicks. And it would be like, yeah, hang on, you're going to mention the saves, yeah, but yeah. no, that that wasn't him. He would be on top of his goalie and his two centre halves and his two strikers because he knew if those five were playing well, he'd win the game. So he really made sure that he kept on top of you. Um, was that a bit of man management from him? I mean, did did you respond more to that? Because there might be some people who go, well, if he's not going to praise me for the good stuff, then I don't want to play for this guy. No, I, I I just knew what he was doing. You know, I'm not. I was. I wasn't silly enough. I knew I was maybe playing well in that game. Um, and for him to say that, I used to like go you know, look to Steve Sutton, who was a goalie coach, and go, you know, so what's he on about? And he went, trust me, he's happy with you. You know, it, it was just his way of of keeping you on your toes for the second half. So you sound like you're a bit of a goody two-shoes if you followed what the manager said all the time. And did you step out of line during your career? Is there any moments like that you can tell us about? I know there was the, the sort of um, an issue with Terry Venables, for example, later on. Was that anything induced by something you did or was it just completely nothing? Um, yeah, well, I don't know. you can say it was induced by me. I, came, I played the whole of the season, 2001-2002 season, played every game, didn't miss a training session. Um, last game of the season, I think we had a day off and then we joined up with the England squad, went to the World Cup, uh, went to Dubai pre-season, did, did like another pre-season, went to the World Cup, Japan, South Korea, um, all involved with that, came home, flew home, was home for about 12 days and had to report for pre-season training, which I know the Arsenal players, literally the moment they get knocked out of the World Cup, they have one month from that date to report. Um, I had 12 days and I wasn't ready. I was I was happy to go in and train and do everything. What I didn't want to do was suddenly jump on an airplane again and go to um, China, Australia and um, uh, Thailand, I think it was, on another, you know, another trip. I ju I'd just done that and I really just didn't want to do it. And Terry was the manager, but he'd, he'd taken over, but he wasn't at the club. So... When I said that I didn't want to go on the trip, um, I was I was out training on the pitch and Eddie Gray came over to me and Eddie said, um, Nigel, the manager's going to call. Can you go into, into his office? He's going to call in the next 10, 15 minutes and he wants to have a word. So I was like, yeah, okay, no worries. So I ran in, um, covered in mud, you know, took an outer layer off, if you like, and um, and boots and stuff and... and stood sort of outside his office um, and his secretary was there and, and I said, you know, where is he? You know, he's been the manager for a few, few days and he's, um, you know, we've not seen him. And she went, oh, he's just away filming. Wish you were here at the moment. So he obviously had a previous um, contract that he had to fulfil. Uh, and so I went in, picked up, you know, picked up the phone when it rang and he said, Nigel, what's this? You're not, you don't want to come on the trip? And I said, Terry, you, you know what it's like away with England. You know, I've I've done I've done that. I just need a break. I need to be home. I need to spend some time with my family. I'm happy to come in and train with the kids, whatever. If you want me to train, I'm happy to do that. You know, I'm not saying I I you know need more time away, but I just don't want to get on an airplane and go to another hotel and and everything like that. So he just basically said, okay, if you don't if you don't if you're not going to come, then I'm not going to pick you again. That was so it. so that was it. Black and white. And and so I said, well. Just to let you know how I'm feeling right at this moment, I don't care. <laughs> and that was that was the conversation. And uh, he put the phone down. He came in a few days later. Um, didn't speak. The lads went off to did the, did the tour. Came back. I was um, training with the kids. Um, and Danny Milosevic was the number two goalie behind Paul. Um, and then on the Thursday before the start of the season, he came up to me and said. I'm going to put you on the bench for Saturday. Um, and that was it, and walked off. So, you know, he'd, he'd sort of alienated me. He's now alienated Danny Milosevic, who was played all the pre-season games with Paul and thought he was going to be on the bench. And then, you know, he was absolutely gutted. And I was I was gutted for him because he's such a nice lad. And, um, you know, that was it. And, you know, I just spent the whole season sat on the bench. You know, and the team went from qualifying from Europe and whatever to just just staying up at the end of the season it was it's a sad decline it was is it something then that does that still I mean the the way that 
I'm reading that from this side of the desk, that still rankles with you. Is it, you know, did Terry Venables on the Christmas card list? Have you had anything to do with him at all since then? Are you mates again? Or, no, no. Uh, were you no, ever mates in the first place? <laughs> no, I, I'd, I'd had no sort of dealings with him. I, I, I was picked for an England B game when I was playing at Palace because um, when he was England manager, um, Palace had gone down, so he wasn't going to pick anyone from, you know, what is the championship now. And... Um, so, you know, he, and he liked Ian Walker as well, who was the, the Tottenham keeper. So he was like third keeper, you know, behind Tim Flowers and, and uh, David Seaman. So all the way through Terry's reign as England manager, I, I wasn't anywhere near it. Um, no, it was the first time that we'd really come together. And it was just an, um, an unfortunate situation. You know, I'd, I was, I'd had enough of <laughs> flying around and doing, doing all that at that point. Um, and I guess he just felt that, he probably thought one of his senior players was messing him around. I, I was just being honest. <laughs> you know, that is the, the, the truth of the matter. I was just being totally honest. And, you know, you could have spoken to Eddie or um, Eddie Gray or Steve Sutton and, and he could have found out the type of guy I was. I'm, I'm not a troublemaker. I just come in, do my work and go home sort of thing. So um, it was it was a bit disappointing, but obviously it was a, an opportunity for Paul. And, and you know, he, he came into the team and... Although the team struggled, Paul did really well. So, you know, it was a good thing for him. And, of course, that led to, to your move to Everton, where eventually things wind up after an injury uh, two or three years later. We'll come back and touch on that in a minute, but I just thought that it was pertinent at that moment to mention the Venables um, thing. So we've missed out a whole chunk at Leeds, which was a pretty damn good chunk. Probably your favourite chunk of your career, because there are... There's the build-up towards getting to the UEFA uh, Cup semi-final. Then there's the Champions League semi-final. We know, of course, what happened after that with the financial issues at the club. But during that period is when you play in the predominance of your 23 England caps as well. Good times in the late 90s and early noughties. Yeah, they were. Um, that was probably the best side that I actually played in, that, that lead side of that era. Um, yeah, it was, it was just... It was George's... Um, you know, got us playing in a certain way and made us difficult to beat. And we had, you know, strikers who could get us goals. So we, we you know, we kept progressing. Um, you know, and George got us to, a, you know, got us into Europe. And then, um, you know, the second time around UEFA Cup um, semi-final, um, my my overriding, mem well, not memory, but thoughts now, when I look back on it now, is... I wish we hadn't played that first semi-final, even if it meant us getting kicked out of it. You know, two of our fans had gone over there to support us, and um, you know, they 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 were just that was just a shocking sort of thing to happen. And and I th and I so wish as players we we said well at, at the time we didn't feel like playing, but we were told we had to play. The game has to go ahead, and I, I just feel like even if it was just me who said, well, actually, I'm not going to. You know, some things are more important. That's what I'd like to have done now. That's what I think we should have done. Um, but we didn't. And we played the game and, and they were actually a fairly decent side themselves. You know, they went on to beat Arsenal in the final. So, they, you know, there were no mugs, certainly. So, um, you know, that was that was a slightly disappointing thing. But, you know, professionally, we were on the up. And then George leaves and David takes over. And, you know, at that time we had... You know, the likes of Jonathan Woodcate, Harry Kuehl, which, you know, George had both, you know, put them in the team and taken them out, you know, a few times. And then, um, you know, David put them in sort of permanently and, and the team got even better. And, you know, we, we got the Champions League semi-final, the, the great run that we had in that competition and, the, you know, the evenings with the supporters and things like that lived long in the memory. You know, they were, they were really great times. And, uh, you know, we got fairly close. Yeah, which, I mean, out of any of those, can you pick out one or two that really do stand out for you, that, you know, the, the goosebumps still reappear when you think about it? Um, AC Milan at home when Lee Bowyer scores um, on a wet night. We were, I think we had, I think we were missing three or four of our sort of best players. I think Danny Mills and Don Matteo played centre-half. Um, you know, we, we weren't at our strongest, but... Um, you know, we dug in. It was a rainy night, and um, you know, Lee, as a, he, you know, he hit it pretty well. Obviously, the goalie should do better, and he's he sort of patted it down and back under his between his legs, and it goes in, and the place just erupted, and it was just, 
it was it was proper noise do you know what I mean but it was it was then you know then then it was back to the wall for a little bit after that but we rode out the storm and and that was a, a you know that was a great win um, that was players and supporters giving absolutely everything they had you know the, the people on the sidelines are, are screaming and shouting and doing everything they can and the players on the pitch are doing everything they can to to hold on to that that one nil lead and you know that's basically what got us through to the next round um, and any more? Um, uh, well, the, the actual the, Champions League semi itself. Um, the semi itself. I think the the quarter final was better when we beat Deportivo at home. We, you know, we we absolutely hammered them three nil. Um, and it was if you ever had two games that were poles apart, um, you know, we we hammered them at our place and we went over there and they absolutely gave us a footballing lesson. And we, you know, struggled to a, mm. you know, we lost two nil and s- sneaked through. That, you know, that could have been six or seven on any other day, but you know, we managed to hold on. And um, and then the semi final, you know, at our place we played really well, and we had some opportunities, and their goalie actually played played really well. And then over there, for 15, 20 minutes, we seemed in control and nothing really going on, and. Then they get a you know a, a, a cross comes across it gets deflected off Harty and and then it just it comes across the face of the face of goal and and the guy sticks it in with his arm and uh, you know it, it just feels a bad way to to lose that goal and I think that the way that they'd scored affected us really and um, I think the wheels came off a bit mm. after that yeah. Yeah, I remember it well, very well, all too well in fact. Um, and it, but barring that, that was a so three nil. Defeat in the second leg, three 0 defeat on uh, on aggregate, and the the dream shattered. Um, fourth in the Premier League, though. So I mean, that that is a very very good team. When you think about the consistency that you have to show to get to a Champions League semi, and still to finish fourth in the league in a very competitive Premier League Premiership, it might have been um, in those days. I'm just looking at some of the names down here. The Gary Kellys you mentioned, uh, Ian Hart, Lucas Radebeke, Skippering, Jonathan Woodgate, Mark Viduka. Um, Harry Kuehl, who just sort of come on the scene, hadn't he? Michael Bridges, who such a shame he got as many injuries as he yeah. did because you know, he was a class um, striker. Robbie Keane was on loan with you. And Alan Smith, the local lad, did good. You mentioned, um, I think, Danny Mills, Rio Ferdinand, of course, David Batty. That, that is a, that's a side. Yeah, Oliver Decor and yep. Eric Backer as well. We, yeah, it was a, it was a great squad. Um, Don Matteo as well. You know, um, it, it was a really strong squad we had there. Um, it probably just wasn't deep enough. If you want to, you know, compete with, um, it would be Man United and Arsenal at the time were the two real top sides, and probably us and Liverpool um, and Newcastle, perhaps, uh, you know, were fighting for the for the next bit. But um, Man United and Arsenal just had deeper squads. They they could. Um, they could call on internationals, you know, right the way down through. They could probably do without probably five players and still put a really strong team out. Whereas if we were without five, we might then start to struggle a little bit. And I think over the course of the season, that probably meant that we finished um, a little bit behind them. What are your thoughts then on what then comes after that as far as Leeds United are concerned? Uh, not that long ago, I actually went to an audience with Peter Ridsdale, would you believe, who was, of course, the chairman, as you well know, in those days. Um, and the fact that he didn't qualify for a second Champions League, uh, oh, sorry, for the Champions League final, I should say, and then things started to spiral out of control. I know you go relatively soon after that, and Terry Venables come in, with, as we've alluded to already, but the element of sadness when you look back at that because of the way things had been for a few years? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as, as players, you're not aware of what's happening. Yes, we were buying players, um, but we were having, you know, sponsorship deals were, were happening as well. You know, there was the Lurpak, 10 million or something, and Sky, I think, put 10 million in. Um, you know, so you're, you're spending, yes, we were spending probably probably close to 60 or 70 but you're thinking well there is money coming in as well you just think ah, if the club can afford to do it you know that's that's the the overriding thing as players you you're unaware of that you just get on with your job um but then when once you know we we lost that semi-final and the following season we we sort of limped to a sort of fifth I think we were and just about and just got into the UEFA Cup Again, which w- wasn't really quite good enough, um, 
and then the following season, you know, David goes and Terry comes in and, you know, players are sold. You know, Rio, Rio went and, you know, once players start going out the door, you know it's going to be more and more difficult. Um, you know, and the quality coming the other way to replace them wasn't wasn't the same. So we, uh, you know, we we did start to struggle. Um, but and at this point, you know, I'm I'm on the bench. There's, there's nothing I can do from there. It's that's quite frustrating. You know, you want to be involved, um, but you know that we we just managed to stay up at the. You know, I think we won at Arsenal, um, which probably just about kept us up. And then the you know the start of the the, the next season, um, I'm still I'm still at Leeds and I'm you know I'm fighting for my place with Robbo, and um, you know I get told you know by the manager at the time that um, whoever does best in pre-season starts. Um, I let in probably three less goals and and did probably equally as well as Paul, um, but then to be told that I wasn't going to start you know and it was it was more down to financial thing Robbo was worth money so they had to put him in the um, in the shop window so you know I was told then that you know, I wouldn't be playing and um, it'd be probably best if I could try and find another club and you know when you're at a club and you love being there and you enjoy doing your best for a club and you enjoy being there um, with the supporters and everything and then you're told you should go and try and find somewhere else so um, that was really difficult. Chelsea came in for me, but I didn't want to move back to London at that time. Um, and Everton came in, and um, I'd spoken to Chris Woods, who was uh, the goalie coach over there, who I'd played in the England squads with and played against him loads of times. And you know, he said the manager's really keen on you. Would you come? And I said yes. Yeah. So, you know, I'd, at this point now, it's I'm going into my second season of not playing. And uh, I want to finish my career playing. You know, I don't want to finish it just, you know, sat on the bench. And so he said, OK. And um, David Moyes was quite um, thorough um, in his sort of scouting of me. He spoke to quite a lot of people, I found out subsequently. And, um, you know, it, it sort of dragged on a few weeks. So it was right on the, the deadline day, um, you know, the 1st of September when he, you know, he made the move and... He just, he, I remember the conversation with him. He said, look, I've got Richard Wright. I've paid a lot of money for him. Um, he's done okay, but he's not done brilliantly. He's got a knee problem. If he comes out of the team and you go in and you do well, then you stay in the team. And um, it was the, the first game. Um, Richard told me afterwards he shouldn't have played because his knee was that bad, but he was trying to keep me out of the team. Um, and, um, I, I, you know, I came on after about 25 minutes or whatever, um, we drew two or two Alan Shearer penalties went in past me. Um, and then, you know, I got back in and got back into playing again. And um, that was the, the best thing that could have happened, you know, and I had, you know, two and a half really great seasons at uh, Everton that I absolutely loved. Come back to that in a sec, but just to remind you, you are listening to or watching uh, Sporting Lives with, with, with myself, Jonathan Deutsch, and uh, Nigel Martin, my guest uh, for the day. And um, do, if you are enjoying what you're watching or what you're listening to, please subscribe um, to whatever it is that you are seeing this or hearing this on. Uh, my thanks as well to Independent Content Services, ICS, for the use of their studio, to Ian Holding and to Julian Barnes, who've uh, helped facilitate this uh, today, so back on with Nigel's career, uh, Everton, and you know, if, if you put it in context like this, if you go to uh, to Newcastle and follow Alan Shearer in as the striker, there's going to be some pressure. If you turn up at Elland Road with a number four on your back, people are going to think is he as good as Bremner. If you go to Everton as a goalkeeper, Nev, big Neville Southall, and you are, you know, they've had Thomas Myra played, um, Paul Gerrard. Steve Simmonson and Richard Wright had all sort of done the job for probably the period I was at Leeds. Um, but like they hadn't had somebody sort of long term. So I went there, I was, I, I just turned 37. So, you know, I didn't have long myself. So, you know, to go there, um, and that was the season, obviously, that you know it wasn't the greatest Everton team in the world but they were well organized the manager got them really well organized Dave David Moyes is a great manager at organizing his teams and um you know it was a backs to the wall effort and you know we we managed to stay up um with if I'm being honest 
not as good a squad as they had at Leeds. So it, it wasn't it wasn't like satisfaction. Well, I've helped another team stay up and Leeds have gone down. I was gutted they gone down because they're still you know a lot of those players are still my mates and I didn't want them to go down. I was gutted for the supporters that they went down. But you know personally, I was I was pleased. And I was pleased at the way that I played and, and my contribution to, to helping us stay up that season. Um, and then moving on, you know, to the next season, you know, we finished fourth bottom the first season. I'm there the next season, you know, we finished fourth and we, we qualify for the Champions League. And, um, you know, that's that's quite a big achievement for, for basically the same squad of players again to, to turn it around as much as we did. And then, of course, the, the injury hits on it um, and you decide to wind things up one thing we haven't talked about the, arguably the most important thing might not be to you don't it uh, England 23 caps we mentioned at the very top of the piece and I looked down your England appearances uh, none against home international sides because of course the home internationals had finished them which seems a bit weird really when you've played 20 odd times because in our younger days when you looked at internationals and if they'd played 20 odd you'd probably guarantee a couple of Wales games and a Scotland match in there Um and other things that stuck out, well, managers you played for, one appearance when Howard Wilkinson was caretaker there, Graham Taylor, three matches under his uh, jurisdiction, uh, five apiece for Glenn Hoddle and Kevin Keegan, and nine for Sven. Um, what was it like working with all those guys? And, and let's talk about the moment you found out you were playing your first international. Um, well, you know, first of all, getting picked in the England squad is, is the first step, and that's, you know, that's a pretty amazing thing. Um, I was rooming with Gary Lineker, so you can imagine in 1987 I was working in the plastics factory and probably 1990, just after the World Cup, um, it, was, it was the first um, England get-together after the World Cup in Italy in 1990. And, um, you know, I, I just went, went to the reception, got my key, went in, opened the door, and there's Gary Lineker sort of sitting on the bed and it's... It's a little bit surreal for, for you know. <laughs> but he says, "Sorry, I got the wrong room." <laughs> pretty much, and and he jokingly sort of said, "You know, I'll get the kettle on," sort of thing. And I, you know, I was like really naive, walking over to put the kettle on, and he went, "No, I'm only joking. <laughs> you know, you don't have to do that." But I think that was probably um, Graham Taylor putting uh, like a senior player with a new player, that type of thing, um, and and he sort of. For those first sort of few years, um, or first couple of years, really, with the England squad, he sort of helped um, help you through the ropes and everything. But then to actually make my debut was we were in the in Russia or in the CIS as it was mm. then, um, and um, Chris Woods is playing, and I, you know, it's just a normal game for me. I'm sat on the bench for England again, which I'd done quite a few times at that point, um, and then Graham Taylor just looks over to me and goes. Right now, just go and warm up. You're coming on, and I think by the time I got on, there was about 12 minutes left. So, um, you know, I got on, and it was two two all at the time, and it finished two all. And I just remember running on there, thinking, "Don't mess up this goal kick," because <laughs> I had to go. It was a goal kick. Was the first thing I had to do, and I managed to get it away. And um, the game really, I, I had nothing to do apart from roll the ball out a few times to defenders. It's uh, it's played completely differently international football to what you know the Premier League was at that time um, so it was it was great and you know Gary Lineker said well your name's changed now it's now Nigel Martin of Crystal Palace and England so he said that is a big you know big step and I remember him telling me that and of course David Seaman was the man wasn't he at the time in terms of um, possession what's it like then when you when you desperately want to be number one but none of those managers are particularly giving you that nod. You are kind of there giving you a game to make sure that you're still sharp and playing at international level. But when it comes to the competitive matches, he was getting the gig. Is uh, Do you feel a bit green about that? Or do you just accept I, it as part of professionalism? You can only do what you can do. I No, I accepted it. And I accept it because he did such a good job. Um, you know, had he not been playing well in those games, then you... you might feel that you have, you have some grievance, but you know he was he was an exceptional goalkeeper. I'd go as far as to say we've had probably three greats. You know, if if you're gonna go back and you know, go back to Gordon Banks, he won the World Cup. He's a great. And Peter Shilton was a great for us, and I think David Seaman's the other great goalkeeper that we've had. We've had lots of good goalkeepers, 
Um, but I think those are the three that you could actually say were great. And that's how I have to square it off in my mind, you know, that he was doing such a good job and he was playing at a team that was winning titles and things like that, whereas we were really just pushing for it. Um, you know, I, I managed to get voted into the Premier League thing, team three years in a row and things like that. So you could say your league form, perhaps you were doing better, but every time he put that England shirt on, he, he always did well, really, right up until his last one. And then uh, that was unfortunately my last one as well. But that's one of those things about goalkeeping. It's a bit strange when you're thinking about who can do the job and, and how to select somebody, because if, if the person who gets picked is playing in championship or contending sides, and you, you might not necessarily be doing that, if they're playing in a side that's that good, surely they're going to get less opportunity to show what they can do between the sticks. Um, I think it goes back to what we were saying about earlier, you know, they're keeping lots of clean sheets and, and only making one or two saves and they just look at unbeatable then, don't they? Um, so it's a perception rather than a reality? Um, no, not really, because he was also, you know, in training, training with him, you could see how good he was. Um, and you know he, he he was a really good goalkeeper. You know, what, watching him at Arsenal, whatever, you know, he rarely had a bad game. You know, it's not very often you saw him got flustered. You know, and when he was flustered, that was when he was really at his worst. But you know, that I didn't see that very often. Um, you know, he, he was such a level-headed guy and didn't didn't get too emotional in games that often. And um, you know, that's why his consistency was as good as it was. Um, is to play for England is that just everything doesn't matter who you're playing against and where it is and what it is but yeah I, I mean for a player that isn't necessarily in the starting 11 um, of, of his manager it's it's vital every time you pull the shirt on that you perform that you are next in line um, and ready if if the other guy you know is out you know the the, the game against um Oh, who do we play now? <laughs> trying to remember now that we drew uh, Greece when we drew two all, and oh, um, Old Trafford. Yeah, yeah, Old Trafford, where David Beckham sticks in the corner mm -hmm. in the last minute. Well, Dave um, injured his shoulder like two days before the game, um, and was out. And you know, you want the gig, and it's it's. I would say it's harder being a number two and having to come in. You know, if you're that number one and you know it's kind of easier, you just turn up and do your thing. But when you're the number two, it's you. You suddenly like people. You know, oh, it's not Dave. It's you know, and and you have to. You don't have to go and prove yourself. You just got to let the game happen, and you just got to try and play it how you would naturally play it. But you know, it, it, there were certainly you know people that perhaps found it you know different that I was behind there and and not Dave, but. You know, on the day I'd, I had a fairly decent game, even though it was two all. We, you know, at two one down, I've made a couple of pretty important saves that if it had gone three one, you know, we wouldn't have got through. But um, you know, I was quite happy with the way I played on the day. And then, obviously, David Beckham sticks one in the top corner, and the country goes mad, and we all, we all love him again. <laughs> yeah, that was a bit of a roller coaster back in those days. I could probably spend another hour talking about that. But um, so. In terms of working alongside somebody like David Seaman and England level, effectively, therefore being his understudy, um, for want of a better expression, it, are, are you supportive of each other in those positions when you when you're rivals, but also squad mates? Yeah, I, 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 I'm, I guess I'm a bit different than some um, in in that respect. Some people will go there, and it'll just be you can see a burning ambition to knock this guy off his perch, but. We're all training together, um, and I just all I do is when it's my turn to go in, I just do as well as I can, as well as I possibly can, um, and work as hard as I can. That's that's kind of how I did it. I didn't, you know, do it so I I didn't make things awkward for Dave. So you know, as the other goalie or other goalies, you're doing a lot of the serving. So for instance, your serving could be bad and make him look bad you can certainly do things like that if you were you know that way inclined I, I'd never do that I'd just try and you know get him the best best serving that he can have um, especially once the game's picked you know my job is to is to serve him you know and get him as confident as he can be for you know because at the end of the day it's it's the country that matters rather than the individual 
Good to hear. You've got to be professional. Which leads me on then to, if we can just change tack slightly, to cricket, because we talked, touched on it earlier that you played as a, as a youngster. I'm guessing that you probably weren't allowed to or able to play much during your professional football career for obvious reasons, a broken finger when you're batting or something like that, dropping a slip, taking a slip catch, <laughs> um, or behind the sticks. Um, so you come to the end of that and then you can re-engage your, your love of cricket as a, as a player. Uh, people may or may not know that uh, Nigel played at Old Modernians, now Leeds Modernians, um, in the northwest of Leeds, and now plays for Knaresborough Cricket Club in the York Senior League, still at 53, Three. playing cricket actively. So you've got to be pretty fit still to do that. Um, but having been a professional sportsman, when you go in the dressing room with the amateur lads who's one game a week, this is it, that's what they live for on a Saturday afternoon, is it all a bit sort of passe to you and, you know, come on, lads, it's not serious sport, or... Are you just as engaged as they are, or even more? Um, probably more. <laughs> um, <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, uh, I, well, it's a hundred days today f- till the start of our cricket season, and that's my, you know, that's my switch on day. So, sort of from now, it's diet and fitness for me. So I have to get myself um, a down. I get down to my playing weight when I'm playing when I was playing football. Um, and I get fit and I get strong because I have to protect my joints because they're not as good as they used to be. Um, so I get myself as fit as I can, and then when I'm playing the game, I'm as determined to win a cricket match as I was any football match. Um, that's just in me. Um, I, I'd i like to say, you know, maybe a few things have rubbed off onto players that I've played with, you know, as in certainly enthusiasm for the game because, you know, you get lots of players, you know, who play sort of cricket who are, you know, they, they kind of care, but it doesn't really matter that much to them. Um, and I try and get, you know, that away from them and say, look, if you're going to turn up every Saturday, then why not give your best? Why not try and win something, be part of something that, you know, that you win together? And, you know, that's how you make your memories. And um, so I, I make sure my standards are as high as they can possibly be and then you know everyone else you know can see that you know and and hopefully you know that rubs off on them a bit are you sort of a, a, a chunter or do you put pressure on the officials then uh, just to give you an example here from my own cricket life I played with um, a guy called Graham Roop who played yeah. for England in the, yeah. in the 70s and you're talking at the back end of his 50s by this time he comes to play uh, locally for a club that I'm playing at and it was an absolutely lovely guy great guy you know not one of these who wanted to showcase his own career and talk about that all the time he would have been very reluctant to sit here today but when he got on the field with you if he was bowling and he could nibble it about a bit and he wrapped the pad he was everything was up there just like he would possibly have been at the Oval in a Surrey or an England game or whatever screaming at the umpire and if he didn't get the decision he'd be walking off down to wherever he was fielding afterwards and regularly as a skipper I'd have to say to him um, you know we're playing Saturday afternoon cricket here Rupert you know just just curb it a bit are you like that do you no I I I hate Injustice in sport. So if somebody dives in, a, in uh, you know, and gets a penalty uh, against you, it's it's horrible. I can remember Harry Kewell getting a penalty at Derby, um, maybe one of the first games of the season, in the last few minutes, and Ian Hart scored the penalty, and the lads came in, and everyone was bouncing, the music was on, everyone was like, yeah, we're top of the league. I think we'd gone top of the league at the time. And it was hollow for me, because Harry, you know, had dived. And, and and I just don't like anything like that in sport. So in cricket now, if somebody nicks off, you know, because I, I do keep wicket, so, you know, if somebody nicks off and I appeal, um, if the umpire gives them not out and they don't walk, then, you know, maybe I'm just reminding them that perhaps they should be a little bit more honest next time. <laughs> in that perfect position, just about, about around about the right ear or whatever it is, left ear. Yeah, yeah. Right. yeah I, so, you know, and... and if I nick off, I walk. You know, I just I'm, I I wouldn't be able to not to. I just if if I hit it or if I know I've hit it, um, I'll just I'll I'll just go. Um, so that that's the that's the only thing that really riles me now. Um, the the only the only other thing is if I see players like on on our team who give the impression they're not trying. 
I'll just say, hey, come on, you know, you got to, you know, you got to go for the full lot. You know, it's it's not just a case of doing it for twenty overs and then you know wishing you were somewhere else, sort of thing. So, mm. um, interesting. And you've not been tempted then to to stick the the green jersey on again and play for a an amateur side. I mean, you've seen the, the shots of the the Chris Waddles and the Trevor Brookings playing in the pub teams on a Sunday morning. No, I I, no. I, I couldn't do that. I'm, I finished with a stress fracture on my ankle, so I I can't kick the ball. Running is is really not a good thing so so you're just a boundary hitter are you so uh, unfortunately not no I just uh, I obviously keeping wicket there's, there's there's just the running to the stumps so every time the ball gets hit whether it's uh, you know whether they go for a run or not I, I will still sprint to the stumps I'm kind of a bit old school in that way um, and I will run um, when I'm when I'm batting if I'm out there long enough to actually score any runs um, so I'm, I'm happy to do that. I just get a very swollen ankle the next day. But if I was kicking a ball the way I'd have to kick, I, I couldn't do that. So so football's and sort of a no no. You know, if it was a if Leeds United were having a you know a, an, an old man's game and and um, you know wanted me to go, I'd happily play in it. I just you know I could side foot a goal kick to somebody and you know start from there. But um, you know kicking out my hands or anything would be a bit uh, probably a, a bit too far. Um, uh, what's happening for Nigel Martin at the moment? What's uh, what's life like? What are you doing? Um, bit of speaking, maybe. A bit, yeah, a little bit of that. Um, uh, got into that a little bit more sort of this year. Um, just going along to to events and you know supporting um, different. You know, I've done a few cricket clubs and gone along and spoke for them and um, and then a few um, sort of football things. Um, that I did sort of last year, which I was happy to go along and and support different events. So, you know, just to have a chat about you know Q and A. I'm not I'm not going to stand up there and you know do a speech or you know do something like that. You know, but I'm I'm quite happy to do Q and A and and answer any questions that like you know supporters or people out there want want to ask. You know, that's I quite you know quite enjoy that. And so, if people want to get in touch with you or maybe an agent to get to engage you in this sort of Pursuit for after dinner or something like that, I, an evening with Nigel Martin. How would they do that? Crumbs. I, I, I don't know because I, it, it, it's so far just been people that I've known have just come up and said, "Would you do this for us?" And I'll go, "Yeah, you know, I'm, you know, I'm happy to go and do that." So it's not like I'm putting myself out there necessarily, but um, I don't know the best way to contact really. If you want to hire him, then just. Email me on jd at jonathandoidge.com and I'll get in touch with him for you. There you go. Um, he's a great guy. So listen, it's been a fantastic hour or so uh, talking about um, those good old days. 23 caps for England, uh, Euro semi-finals, UEFA Cup semi-finals um, and a walker at cricket. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Thanks very much, Nigel Martin. Thank you.